Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Strickland. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. In Pyongyang, North Korea, one of the biggest elements of the skyline is the Tower of the Juche Ideal. This white, pointed obelisk was completed in 1982 and ostensibly was a gift from the people of North Korea to Kim Il-sung for his birthday. The tower, again, is white, and at the top of it, there is a large artificial flame that lights up red at night, and three figures stand before it. There's an industrial worker, hefting aloft a hammer, reminiscent of the one on the Soviet flag. There is an agricultural worker, hefting aloft a sickle, also reminiscent of the symbol on a Soviet flag. And there is a third figure, an intellectual and they are holding a calligraphy brush, there with the hammer and sickle. And those three statues represent, ostensibly, three different strata of the North Korean people coming together and holding aloft their tools in support of a single ideal, Juche. And Juche is a slippery term. It's one I've had trouble with, and it's one that I've been grappling with while I've been trying to plan this episode. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on this one, because Juche is the thing that you really need to wrap your head around if you want to understand North Korea. And while I was researching this and writing this, there was part of me that wanted to be fair. What I didn't want this episode to be was just an invective by me, into a microphone, talking about how North Korea was just rationalizing its own need for power. I didn't want this to come across as some kind of angry, Christopher Hitchensy sort of rant about how North Korea's prevailing ideology was just a bunch of apologia for tyranny and oppression. But, having read up on it, having rewritten this episode, having poured a bunch of time on this... North Korea's prevailing ideology is just a bunch of apologia for tyranny and oppression. But we'll get to that. What is Juche? It is translated mostly as self-reliance, but it's more complicated than that. And the official website of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea defines Juche this way. It is, according to them, quote, Based on the philosophical principle that man is the master of everything and decides everything, it is the man-centered world outlook and also a political philosophy to materialize the independence of the popular masses, namely a philosophy which elucidates the theoretical basis of politics that leads to the development of society along the right path. The government of the DPRK steadfastly maintains Juche in all realms of the revolution and construction. Establishing Juche means adopting the attitude of a master towards the revolution and construction of one's country. It means maintaining an independent and creative standpoint in finding solutions to the problems which arise in the revolution and construction. It implies solving these problems mainly by one's own efforts in conformity with the actual conditions of one's own politics country. By the way, I am reading this verbatim. Yes. 
one's own politics country, with politics in all caps for some reason. Anyways, moving on. The realization of independence in politics, self-sufficiency in the economy, and the self-reliance in the national defense is a principle the government maintains consistently. The Korean people value the independence of the country and nation and, under the pressure of imperialist and dominationist, have thoroughly implemented the principle of independence, self-reliance, and self-defense, defending the country's sovereignty and dignity firmly. There's more. It is an invariable policy of the government of the Republic, guided by the Juche idea, to treasure the Juche character and national character and maintain and realize them. The government of the Republic always adheres to the principle of Juche, the principle of national independence, and thus is carrying out the socialist cause of Juche. Unquote. Now, I hope that was as exhausting for you to listen to as it was for me to read. Because as long as that definition from the North Korean website is, it says ultimately nothing. Also, by the way, uh, North Korea has a website in English. You can just go there and read stuff like that. And when I did that, I did kind of wonder if my computer acquired some kind of very specific North Korean virus. Windows says there's no threat, so I guess I'm fine, but... You know, I was still paranoid as I clicked around on things. Anyway, a few things about Juche, about this idea that North Korea is sort of built around. It's not derived from Marxist-Leninism or from Maoism. If you think about it as being kind of a form of communism, then I think you're thinking about it the wrong way around. Uh, because there was that big thing about how it is man-centered. Marx, and this is really oversimplifying things, basically believed that all of human history was shaped by economic forces that were largely beyond a lot of people's control, and also didn't really happen because of planning or agency, but really were a force unto themselves. North Korean ideology isn't really about that. North Korean ideology really says that what happens to a nation is of that nation's choosing. What happens to a people is of that people's choosing. So, in a lot of North Korean propaganda, uh, you'll see that it is very different from stuff that you find in other communist countries. Lots of other communist countries present a certain continuity of Marx to Lenin to Stalin, to whoever the current leader is. North Korea very much downplays Marx, Lenin, and Stalin as being precursors to Kim Il-sung. Uh, another word for the prevailing North Korean ideology is just Kim Il-sungism, or later on, Kim Il-sungism hyphen Kim Jong-ilism, which really rolls off the tongue. And this isn't just an ideological thing, either. This also is reflected in how Kim Il-sung was running North Korea during the 1950s and the 1960s. From 1956 until 1960, he made a concerted effort to get rid of a lot of the more Soviet and conventionally communist North Koreans that were in his regime. So a lot of the people who subscribed to what a lot of us would recognize as quote-unquote normal communism, Kim Il-sung saw as a threat. He got rid of them. 
oftentimes violently, by making them just disappear into a labor camp somewhere, because he was not in the business of making a conventional socialist state. Also, the death of Stalin and Khrushchev's subsequent declaration that Russia would do away with the cult of the personality, that was a threat to Kim. After Stalin's death, North Korea shut down a lot of communications with the Soviet Union. In Soviet publications and newspapers, there was a bunch of writing about how Stalin's cult of personality and Stalin's, like, single leader totalitarianism had been not great. And so North Korea made a concerted effort during the latter part of the 50s and the 60s to shut down a bunch of, you know, liberal, progressive, more quote-unquote like enlightened thinking from the Soviet Union. De-Stalinization was one of Kim Il-sung's biggest potential threat. That's a big motivator for self-reliance. That's a big motivator for the Kim regime to say we're doing our own thing. Our regime does not derive from Soviet ideals, but from our particular ideals. Right now, you might be thinking, what's wrong with self-reliance? What is wrong with a country deciding that it's going to take care of itself? Well, nothing, but intertwined with Juche is North Korea's practice of oftentimes not pursuing more efficient or cost-effective technologies, because doing so would intertwine them with other countries. So instead of investing in technology that would really knit them closer into the world economy, North Korea has oftentimes chosen to just use the option where they can throw more labor at the problem. Coal is probably the best example of this. Coal is one of the most inefficient forms of power on Earth. Uh, it's dirty, it causes health problems, it's not even cheap, but prior to North Korea's nuclear program, coal is what powered the country. And North Korea's coal industry, like all coal industries, was dirty and dangerous. And oftentimes, it failed to meet the power needs of the people that it was supposed to provide electricity to. Now, the regime employed thousands of workers to work in the coal mines to extract this filthy substance from dangerous tunnels. And right now, I'm going to throw another ideological word at you, Cholima. That was supposed to be the animating ideal that powered these workers, and all workers, in North Korea. And Cholima is the name of a winged horse from Chinese and Korean mythology. It looks like a pegasus. Picture a pegasus, but from, like, somewhere else. But anyways, in Pyongyang, there are no shortage of statues of this winged horse. And in the late 1950s, we're not entirely sure when, um, this winged equine hippogriff thing became a symbol of what is now called the Cholima movement. And its basic premise boils down to work harder, put in more hours, work faster, make more steel, harvest more grain, mine more coal, exceed your quota, ride the winged horse to economic supremacy. And for North Koreans toiling in mines, this meant that greater power generation didn't come from technological advancement. Uh, it didn't come from innovating, either with new technologies or new efficiencies. No, 
economic supremacy was supposed to come from just plain working harder. Economic supremacy and greater productivity were supposed to come from your back. North Korea, rather than importing advanced mining technologies from other Eastern Bloc countries that could have automated a lot of the most dangerous jobs in the world, simply threw more workers at it. A big reason for this is because had they done that, North Korea very well might have been dependent on the countries, dependent on the countries that they imported that technology from, for things like parts and also expertise with maintaining it. So, even though they could have gotten a lot more efficiency from Soviet machinery, they chose not to. During the 1960s, North Korea did consider building oil-burning power plants, and oil power would have been a lot safer and more efficient than the country's coal infrastructure. It could have produced more power for North Korea by more than an order of magnitude. Now, in a lot of other countries, seeing that, seeing that burning oil would have been cheaper than burning coal, they would have said, sure, it's cheaper, there's better results, let's do it. However, Kim Il-sung turned the idea down. Here is what Kim Il-sung himself said about newfangled oil power in the 1960s. Quote, Certain scientists have, in former days, suggested that oil-burning stations should be built, saying that oil power stations can be built in less time. That is true. However, if we build oil-burning stations, we will have to import oil from other countries, for it is not available in our country. This is contrary to our party's policy of building an independent economy. Therefore, I did not accept a scientist's suggestion and decided to build power stations that rely on the resources of our own country. Unquote. Now again, that sounds great, but the resources that Kim Il-sung is talking about is thousands of people laboring and dying in North Korea's coal mines, while there is another better option available. And this is a theme that will come up again and again with North Korea. And this is something that makes North Korea really, really frustrating to read about and presently for the outside world to deal with. Ideology is often more important than development. And in North Korea, ideology is basically something that's meant to support the Kim family, which means the Kim family remaining in power is more important than development. Unlike other communist states, and like China, like Vietnam, which have moderated themselves since the end of the Cold War, North Korea hasn't, because power is more important than prosperity. And it's really hard to negotiate with another state when they have all the power they want, and they don't care much for the potential of opening up. Speaking of power, by the way, Juche does very squarely put the leader at the center of the ideology. Juche kind of makes noises about being about the masses. Again, it describes itself as man-centric, and it says that power derives from the masses. But then it very quickly points out that the leader is the center of the masses, and anything that he says or does or talks about or declares is right, is infallible. And once again, I really didn't want this episode to be just me going on a curmudgeonly Christopher Hitchensy rant about North Korea. But here we are. Now, 
one of the weirder aspects of Juche is that despite it being an ideology of isolationism and also ethno-nationalism, there is a very, very big component about how, you know, North Korea is special and the North Koreans see themselves as the quote-unquote real Koreans and they're guarding their culture and all that. But despite all the stuff about, you know, putting up walls and talking about Korean exceptionalism, the North Korean regime really likes to portray it as having a kind of international appeal. In a lot of official North Korean propaganda, Juche and Kim Il-sung are right up there with socialism and Marx worldwide. And if you were to believe official North Korean propaganda, oppressed peoples the world over are reading the works of Kim Il-sung and thinking about how they can use them to eventually rise up. I somewhat doubt this. Uh, at this point, I think I have probably read more of Kim Il-sung's words than most people outside of North Korea, and I am but a humble podcaster. But again, this isn't about trying to claim that Juche is actually popular with, you know, the various oppressed folks out there. It's more about North Korea in the communist world portraying its own thing as co-equal with stuff from China and stuff from Russia. Because North Korea, despite being the creation of and the attempted puppet of the Soviet Union, really isn't. It's off doing its own thing. And that leads into the central irony of Juche. Despite meaning self-reliance, North Korea is anything but. Juche is a way that the North Korean regime has been able to justify isolationism, ethno-nationalism, and authoritarianism, both to its people, the outside world, and itself. But North Korea only made it through the Cold War because of the Soviet Union and China. At any given time during the Cold War, about one-third of Korea's total GDP was made up of foreign aid from one of those countries, either China or the Soviet Union. North Korea also spent basically all of the Cold War exploiting the rivalry between the Soviet Union and China and playing those two powers off of each other, extracting the maximal amount of aid from one, the other, or both. And this aid was oftentimes dressed up as trade, but, but the end of the Cold War really reveals that Russian businesses were not terribly interested in North Korea if they didn't have to be. During the Cold War, Russian investment in North Korea was in the billions of dollars. After the Berlin Wall fell, though, all that money went away, and Russian investment in North Korea was not even 10 million. During the 90s, North Korea was similarly reliant on aid. We'll talk about this later as we progress through the timeline, but that was during North Korea's gigantic famine that killed, we're not sure, but possibly about 10 million people. During that famine, North Korea got considerable food aid from the countries it despises the most, South Korea, Japan, and the United States. So again, I went into all this wanting to maybe be fair, but Juche is really just so much talk and so much rationalization. And that tower that looms over Pyongyang, that great white spike with the artificial flame on top of it, really is an empty vessel. And one last thing, 
that tower, the Tower of the Juche Ideal, North Korea's most visible symbol of independence and self-reliance, it's modeled on the Washington Monument. Next time, we'll look at how North Korea has been interacting with the outside world. If you haven't already, this would be a great time to go back and re-listen to episode two about the axe murder incident. We'll talk about that and the seizure of the USS Pueblo. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Thank you to everybody who supports this podcast every single month. Also, thank you to everybody who reviews it on iTunes and gives it rating. Those ratings and reviews do something inside iTunes' algorithm, and the more people who rate and review the show, the more people can potentially discover it on that platform. So please go do that. I really appreciate that. I also read all of those reviews, and I love seeing your words and also taking your feedback into account. Um, speaking of feedback, I am on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. I am also on Twitter. I am at Joe Streckert. Uh, go find me there and follow me. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>